This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Air passenger advocate Gabor Lukash says Canadian Airlines are breaking the law by offering vouchers instead of refunds for flights cancelled because of the pandemic. And following up on this week's explosive military report on our long-term care homes, straight talk on how we got here and how we fix it. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. As we head into warmer weather, some Canadian health experts have issued a warning about hand sanitizer. Don't leave it in your vehicle because it could cause a fire. As sun shines on your windshield, high alcohol sanitizer could go up in flames. The advice comes in a COVID-19 newsletter distributed to physicians, volunteers and staff by Alberta Health Services. Here's an unexpected benefit from joint replacement surgery. A new study finds that in addition to making it easier to get around and alleviating pain, knee and hip replacements also helped patients' marriages. Study participants who were in their late 60s and married for an average of 36 years said the ability to carry on with social and leisure activities with their partner and the diminished caregiver burden improved their marital relationships. This is going to change things. People can identify with themselves in a box of 24 crayons. If you're buying crayons for yourself or the grandkids, you'll notice a big difference. A Canadian has designed Crayola crayons that depict human skin tones. As a child, Victor Casale was perplexed about how to draw himself with a crayon. So he set out to create a more inclusive selection of shades. The end result is Colors of the World, announced by Crayola this month. In addition to the 24 crayon set, there's a 32 crayon set that includes four hair colors and four eye colors. Queen guitarist Brian May says he recently had three stents put into arteries leading from his heart after a small heart attack. The 72-year-old says the stents were put in after his doctor drove him to the hospital when he started experiencing symptoms. He says he feels fine now and the procedure was a success. Bill Clinton and James Patterson have teamed up for another political thriller. The president's daughter will be released next June. It follows a former president of the United States, now relocated to rural New Hampshire, whose daughter is kidnapped. The pair co-wrote a previous bestseller in 2018. Clinton says he never imagined he'd be writing a book with a master storyteller like Patterson, much less two. Patterson says working with President Clinton has been a highlight of his career. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. 
Tens of thousands of Canadians are out of pocket after their flights were cancelled because of COVID-19. My brother-in-law is 92 years old, and this was supposed to be his last trip overseas. He had a flight booked for March the 23rd. Well, Air Canada refused to give him back his money. Everybody is saying, oh, Air Canada will suffer. What about the poor people, you know? They're no different to the guys who scam the elderly. They just do it legally. But passenger rights advocate Gabor Lukash says it's actually illegal. Air Canada and WestJet are giving vouchers rather than refunds to passengers who bought non-refundable tickets. I reached Dr. Lukash in Halifax. Passengers whose flights were cancelled are entitled, as a matter of law, to a full refund to the original form of payment of all unused segments. Uh Uh-huh. So why is this happening with our biggest airlines, notably Air Canada? And WestJet. The big airlines are breaking the law. They are getting away with it because the government believes that the passengers should be propping up private businesses. The government has said, the prime minister has said that there has to be a balance between uh, the rights of the consumer to get their money back and the fact that we need the airlines to be there when this is all over, because uh, I guess he believes that if we pay out, if they pay out all this cash, they're in danger of going under. It is not the consumer's job to prop up private companies, no matter how important they are. If it's against the law, it's hard to imagine how are they getting away with this and getting away with doing this for very large numbers of people. They are getting away with it in Canada, not internationally. Canada is the only country that doesn't enforce the rights of consumers in this regard. In the United States, as early as the 3rd of April, the federal regulator, the Department of Transportation, issued an enforcement notice warning airlines that they have to issue refunds. A second warning came just a couple of weeks ago on May 12th. In the European Union, first warning came on March 18th, right at the beginning of the pandemic, the second even firmer warning coming sometime around May 12th, 13th, where actually the European Union was willing to take legal action against those states that seem to be harboring airlines that don't issue refunds. So we have seen that the Western world is making it clear that the rule of law cannot be compromised because of the pandemic. It's a vital question that uh, we don't give up some of our basic values, rule of law being among them, because of pandemic. Do you have any idea how many passengers are affected by this being offered these vouchers? Based on a back-of-envelope calculation, I would anticipate several million people may be affected by it. Let's just just think about it. Air Canada owes $2.6 billion to consumers. Air Transit owes $809 million. When you combine the two, we are getting about $3.4 billion. Even average, it's about $1,000 out to a passenger. We are talking about 3.4 million passengers affected. And even if you think, okay, some of these are business passengers, let's assume the average is $2,000. We're talking about 1.7 million passengers. That is the reason that there is such a public outcry. That is the reason that when in Parliament's website, a petition was started within 24 hours, it went from 500 signatures to 20,000 or close to that figure. People are pissed. There's also an issue with insurance, because I have also heard from people who said they had cancellation insurance. It was the airline that canceled, and their insurance isn't paying them out. That's a collateral damage from all this situation. The insurance companies 
are relying on the vouchers as a way to say, well, you actually didn't have losses because you got those vouchers. And what do you have to say to those insurance companies? In the case of insurances, one has to look closely at the fine print. In the case, in the case of some insurance uh, policies, there is indeed a fine print that says that if you can use the money for a later travel, then you are not entitled to a refund uh, through the insurance. Uh, so in that case, at least it's legally justifiable and they're not outright breaking the law. Not always. I've seen this type of explanation given even in cases where the insurance did not have any color of right to what they were doing. On the positive side, I've heard stories uh, about people who managed to get a refund through their credit card company, but with a caveat, just from one of our colleagues here, and she said her sister got a refund through the credit uh, card company, but the credit card company more warns and saying, we hope the credit sticks, but there may just be too many people asking for this. Well, it's not the too many people asking for it. It's a question of what a merchant does. We are talking about a notion called chargebacks. Whenever you make a transaction on a credit card, you have a legal right under most provinces, uh, provincial consumer protection laws to have that charge reversed if you don't get what you paid for. This is called a chargeback, and then a credit card company sends documents uh, to the merchant. The merchant is given a chance to respond. If the merchant provides some documents, the credit card companies say, well, actually, we don't think this chargeback is valid. They may reverse it, but it's not the end of the story. You can then rebut the uh, dispute from the company, and then you submit more documents and show, well, this terms and conditions didn't exist when I was booking the trip. Uh, These policies did not say that uh, they can just keep my money in any way there was no government prohibition to the particular destination. For example, something that we see a lot is for passengers traveling to the U.S. or to um, some of the sun destinations, the airlines are trying to claim somehow that the Canadian government shut down uh, the flights, which is not true. There is official government advisories confirming that uh, with respect to uh, North American destinations, sun destinations, the airports remained open, Canadian airports remained open. So then you send back all these documents and then, uh, eventually, the credit card company has to deal with the situation, but it's a right to get a charge. It's not just a favor. What about the claim uh, there's in, in many industries, there's something called a force majeure, an act of God. Can they claim that? Force majeure it protects an, a company, an airline, from uh, suing them for loss of enjoyment. So you say, you know, I was hoping to have that big wedding, but you cancel it on me. Under normal circumstances, if they just cancel on you because we don't, they don't like your wedding dress, then uh, you can sue them because you were expecting to have all this enjoyment there, the destination, and they didn't provide it to you. When, when there is an act of God, you cannot sue them for the loss of enjoyment. You cannot sue them for uh, the consequence of not being able to go on vacation. But force majeure is not a legal basis for them pocketing the money. You made a contract for travel services you did not buy um, gift cards. So therefore, you, they, the bare minimum they have to give is, do is give back your money. So what should people do now? Charge back on credit cards is the way to go, obviously. After you make a first good faith attempt to get a refund from your vendor, from your supplier, if there is a problem with the charge back, fight back. Uh, I would even consider just uh, advising the credit card company this is an invalid charge, refuse to pay the bill. Let the credit card company try to take it to court because once it goes to court, to a judge it will be obvious. Here's the money. Here's the person who didn't get anything for the money. Case dismissed. 
So I would just suggest everyone to fight back, not accept it. Consumers are clearly in the right here. Finally, is there a political route for getting political this result? Political route, of course, also exists. And I recommend all listeners, all viewers to uh, contact their members of parliament, uh, to insist to speak to them on the phone, make it clear that these are their rights, that the airlines are breaking the law, and that they expect their representatives to have the laws enforced and to have anything in the law to be corrected and clarified so that when it happens again in some way or form, public, the public will be protected. Okay. Dr. Gabor Lukacs, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. That was Dr. Gabor Lukacs, founder of the nonprofit Air Passenger Rights. Significant gross fecal contamination. Nurses, PSWs, not changing PBE while moving between numerous patient rooms. Forceful feeding, causing audible choking. Those are just a few of the violations cited in this week's explosive military report on the conditions in some of our long-term care homes. They are horrific, but not a surprise to anyone who has followed the system over the long term. How did we get here, and how do we reform it? I talked to Tamara Daly. Tamara Daly is a professor and director of York University's Center for Aging Research and Education. One of the things that became readily apparent with COVID uh, is that we rely very heavily on the care that is provided by family members, by volunteers, by privately paid companions. And when those folks were no longer allowed into the home, all of a sudden, the skeleton crew of staffing that remained uh, was, was very evident and very clear. And so a lot of the things that happen when you have those extra supports in place were no longer happening. And a lot of the things that are reported when you have the extra supports in place were also not happening. That's right. So uh, family, volunteers, paid companions, they can be an extra set of eyes and ears uh, in a way that supports the care that is provided by uh, the paid staff. A lot has been made about the difference between for-profit and not-for-profit homes. And many of the violations or most of the violations are coming at for-profit homes. And obviously, they've got to get for-profit from somewhere. How do you see that divide? One of the things that we do know is that in homes that are public and non-profit, they staff at a higher level. So they don't simply staff at the level uh, that is afforded by the provincial government funding. They put money back into their staffing budget line. Uh, So they add to that budget line and therefore they have higher staffing levels. So one of the things that seems apparent is that staffing levels make a difference. The other thing that's really important to consider is the extent to which the working conditions are good. So we know that having permanent staff with full-time benefits and uh, access to full-time hours produces uh, working conditions that are better for the worker, but also there's more continuity in the care. And that's vitally important in long-term care because for people with dementia, you really need to develop a relationship and know that person. When COVID hit, the reason that it was so much more important to know that person is because seniors were presenting atypically. And what that means is that they weren't showing the same signs of symptoms as we were seeing in younger populations. 
So if you have a temporary workforce or a more casual workforce, and you uh, don't know the residents, you don't know the consistency of their food, you don't know what their uh, regular routine is, you don't know how they would normally react, you set up the conditions for something like COVID to exploit. How does Ontario compare to other countries and other provinces? Ontario doesn't compare very well, in my opinion. We have a higher proportion of of profit-taking we have uh, lower staffing ratios, even in comparison to places like British Columbia. Uh, we don't value quality of life and social care as much as they do in other countries. We have an overly medicalized system. We have a funding system that doesn't work in the sense that it doesn't resource adequately. And I think we can do a better job. We pay a lot of public dollars. We could get a much better system uh, if we were to rejig it. And this will require, though, that the province listen broadly and not just to a few uh, uh, to specific evidence, but it, it actually takes into consideration all of the good research that Canadian researchers have done in this area. With all of this, uh, how does this get fixed? Is it a matter of requiring more staffing, paying people more, uh, or do you get rid of for-profit homes? But What's the mix to get this fixed? We most definitely need to consider funding a minimum staffing level that ensures that there are enough people available to provide a decent quality of care and decent working conditions. If we want to fix the problems of attrition and turnover in the sector, we also have to think about the ways in which we create good jobs. So the rates of pay, permanent employment, uh, reducing the reliance on temporary and agency workers, full stop. We also need to think about what we want to do with the very large amount of public money that we put into the sector. Do we want that money to be for public benefit or are we okay as a society knowing that this public money is going towards uh, profit uh, in some homes? I think If we want public benefit, we have to think about ways that we construct our system so that we get that public benefit. One way to do this would be to move things to a federal level in the sense that we set national standards, much like we have standards for healthcare in general. Tamara Daly, thank you so much for this. Thank you. That was Tamara Daly, Professor of Health Policy and Administration at York University. brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today and be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.